The Old Testament lesson for this Sunday, the second Sunday in Lent, is taken from Genesis chapter 17. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of the multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The epistle lesson appointed for this Sunday is from Paul's letter to the Romans, the fifth chapter. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in, the, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Out of respect for Christ, we rise to hear the Holy Gospel. The Holy Gospel according to St. Mark, the 8th chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. And this Gospel reading will serve as the basis for the sermon this morning. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of God must suffer many things 
and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And he called to him the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? For what can a man give in return for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Well, grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. The text for this morning's message is the gospel lesson that I read to you only moments ago from Mark chapter 8. Several years ago, I was listening to a sermon on this text by Reverend Stuart Briscoe. And some of the thoughts that he shared in that message are some of the thoughts I'm going to share with you. You know, many people go through their life and they think that their life doesn't count for very much. They're not wealthy. They're not popular. They haven't accomplished any remarkable feat. They've never really stood out in the crowd. And they feel as though they're just simply trudging along through life and life is pretty mundane and routine. Many Christians feel the same thing about their Christian life. They're dissatisfied with their life with Christ. They compare themselves to other rock-like, solid Christians, and they wonder, why can't I have a faith like that person? Others want their life with Jesus to be one spiritual high after another spiritual high, and they're disappointed when their life is ordinary or just simply common. Some find it difficult to articulate their faith when they are given the opportunity to do so, and they're frustrated with themselves. Many Christians feel like failures because they look at their life and they just don't see that they're improving in godly living. In fact, they often see themselves slipping back in the same old sins over and over again. And frankly, many Christians suffer from an identity crisis as they fail to see what difference Christ makes in their day-to-day existence. My friends, do some of those descriptions describe you and your relationship with Jesus? Have you found yourself wrestling with some of these thoughts? If so, then I have good news for you this morning. Ordinary folk make great disciples. Now, we need to ask ourselves the question and answer the following question. Are you a disciple of Jesus Christ? Now, when I ask this question, I'm not implying that there's a difference between being a disciple of Jesus Christ and being a Christian. It's not like I'm talking about two different kinds of species. No. To be a disciple of Jesus Christ is to be a Christian, and to be a Christian is to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And so what is a disciple? 
Well, a disciple is someone who has a relationship with a teacher. This is really the simplest way to define that word disciple. In the Greek world, the philosophers like Plato or Socrates or Aristotle, they had disciples. They had people who listened to their teachings and then who went and disseminated those teachings to others. You may recall that St. Paul, prior to his conversion to the Christian faith, was a disciple of Gamaliel. And we know that Jesus had a number of disciples, at least 12, many more so actually, who sat at his feet digesting his word and sharing those teachings with other people. And so again, I ask you the question, are you a disciple of Jesus Christ? Are you sitting at his feet, learning his word, digesting it? Are you discovering his truth? Are you identifying yourself with him as your teacher, as your master, as your savior? Are you applying his forgiveness and love to yourself? Are you living by his teachings and are you disseminating those teachings to others? I ask you this question. Are you a disciple of Jesus Christ? Because you see, it's an important question. Jesus showed how important discipleship is by, first of all, gathering together disciples and then investing three years of his life into them so that they might learn his teachings, so that they might be able to disseminate to others. And just before Jesus ascended into heaven, what did he do? But gather his disciples together and say to them, go and make disciples, baptizing and teaching them all that I've commanded you. Jesus, our master and teacher, well, he outlines three basic characteristics of what it means to be a disciple, of what it means to be a Christian. Disciples of Jesus Christ are ordinary folk who confront the issues of Christ, the issues that he raises, who confirm the claims of Christ, and who conform to the pattern of of life that our teacher outlines in his word. Christians, that is, disciples of Jesus Christ, are people who confront the issues that Jesus raises in his word. For example, in verse 35 of our text, Jesus states, For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Jesus is essentially saying, or he's asking, what on earth are you doing with your life? Now that's a pretty big question, wouldn't you say? And Jesus identifies that there's two possibilities, there's two possible responses to that question. Jesus says you can either invest your life in me and in my teachings, or you can waste your life and in the process forfeit your soul. What a horrible thought. To think that you can go through your whole life and waste it. And not only waste it, but to live your life in such a way that you never experience eternity with Christ in the hereafter. You see, Christians, disciples of Jesus Christ, confront that issue. Most people never think about this issue. They just go through life, day by day, doing their thing, never wondering whether or not there's more to life than simply living day to day. 
But Jesus' followers, they confront this issue head on. And Jesus says that the determining factor that decides whether our life is invested or wasted is our attitude towards Him. Jesus says if you want to hang on to your life for yourself, then you waste your life. But if you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, commit your life to me and my gospel, then you invest your life for eternity. And so disciples of Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit working in them through God's Word, commit themselves. They commit themselves to Jesus as their Master, Teacher, and Savior. Second, disciples of Jesus Christ, that is, Christians confirm the claims that Jesus makes of Himself. The validity of Christianity does not rest or fall on the integrity or the lack thereof of Jesus' disciples. Oh, it's very easy to point to the hypocrisy and the corruption of the visible Christian church and the atrocities committed by Christians in the past and the present. It's very easy for people to point their finger at you and me and point out all of our faux pas and as a result try to denigrate against the Christian faith. But Christianity does not stand or fall upon us. Christianity stands or falls upon the claims that Jesus makes of Himself. Is Jesus who He says He is or is He not? If Jesus is not the Son of God, if Jesus did not die on the cross for our sins, if Jesus did not rise from the dead as He has said and as He has done, then our faith is useless. St. Paul even said that when he was writing to the the Corinthian Christians. He said, if Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead, then we are to be pitied more than all people because we have believed a lie. But if Jesus is who He says He is, if Jesus is God's Son, and He did die for the sins of all people, and He did rise from the dead, then our Christian life and our faith is not in vain. Jesus realized the importance of this fact. And hence the reason why he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? Now the disciples were ready for that question. They had been out polling the people in Galilee and Judea. And so they had found out that popular opinion was that Jesus was possibly John the Baptist who had come back from the dead. Or maybe Elijah who had also come back from from the dead, so to speak. Or maybe he was one of the prophets But were they, Jesus' disciples, ready for the next question that Jesus asked? But what about you? What about you? Who do you say that I am? Now that's what disciples of Jesus Christ are prepared to answer. Christians are ready to confirm the claims of their teacher. And Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, had an answer. Peter always had an answer, even though Peter didn't always understand the question or even sometimes the implications of his answer. But Peter said, you are the Messiah. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Peter was right, of course. And Peter was thrilled. He had got the question right. How discouraged Peter and the other disciples must have been when Jesus instructs them not to tell anyone. 
And we soon see why Jesus gave them that instruction. For Jesus begins to talk about his mission. I, the Son of Man, am going to Jerusalem to suffer many things. And you just see Peter kind of standing in the background shaking his head. Like, no. And I'm going to be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law. And you can just see Peter's mind going, what? What is he talking about? And then I will be killed. And you can just see, like, Peter gasping, oh, no. And after three days, I will rise again. And again, Peter, like, what in the world are you talking about, Jesus? No, Peter finally cries out. Never, Lord. This shall never happen to you. And you see, Peter had answered Jesus' question correctly. But now it's clear why Jesus told Peter and the other disciples not to tell anyone. Peter had the answer, but he was all wrong. Peter knew that Jesus was the Messiah, but Peter didn't have the foggiest idea of what kind of Savior, what kind of Messiah Jesus is to be. And you see, here's the problem even for today for so many people. Everyone can manufacture their own kind of Savior, their own kind of Messiah, and that's why we have Saviors a dime a dozen. People conveniently create a Savior that fits neatly into their area of life, that satisfies them. It becomes like a little idol in their household, so to speak. But the Savior produced is not the Savior of the Bible. The Savior that they really need. And so you see, Peter's Savior, the one that he had created in his own mind, is not going to be rejected. Peter's Savior is not going to suffer. Peter's Savior is not going to die. And therefore, there's no need for Peter's Savior to rise from the dead. And you see, every point of Peter's Savior clashed with the real Savior. The Savior that Peter really needs. And that's why Jesus told Peter and the other disciples, don't tell anyone. So who really is Jesus? Well, Jesus is the rejected Savior. Jesus is the suffering Savior. Jesus is the resurrected Savior. This is ridiculous, Lord. You can just hear Peter thinking those words. This is ridiculous, Lord. Jesus, don't you realize that you're no good to us dead? We need a revolution. We need a rebellion. We need to restore the divinity kingdom to what it once was. Come on, you're the promised one. Stop talking all this death talk. Let's get out there and shake some cages. Let's go out there and bang some heads. But Peter didn't realize that the only way that the society changes, the only way that we are changed. The only way that we are forgiven of our sins and victorious over death is when sin is dealt with. And sin can only be dealt with and defeated by a Jesus, by Jesus, who is rejected, who sheds his blood on a cross to bring us forgiveness, who dies so that he can defeat death for us by his own resurrection from the dead. And disciples of Jesus Christ, Christians, are ordinary folk who confirm these claims of Jesus. Ordinary folk who believe that Jesus is the eternal Son of God, born, 
conceived, first of all, in the womb of Mary, born of the Virgin Mary, and then who was rejected and who suffered and who died for our sins. But we're also ordinary folk who believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead just as He promised, and that He promises everlasting life to everyone who believes in Him as the resurrection and life. And so, yes, we confess that Jesus is the rejected Savior. He is the redeeming Savior. We believe that He is the risen Savior who rules for all eternity. And Christians, disciples of Jesus Christ, know and believe that in Jesus their sins, all of them, are forgiven. Third, disciples of Jesus Christ conform to the pattern of life that Jesus outlines in verse 34 of our text. If anyone would come after me, Jesus says, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Disciples of Jesus Christ are ordinary folk who come after him, deny themselves, take up their cross, and keep on following him. The expression to come after is used of a lover coming after his or her beloved. In the sermon that I mentioned before by Reverend Stuart Briscoe, he tells the following story that occurred while he was in Edinburgh, Scotland. Briscoe recounts, I was at the Charlotte Chapel, and a young lady was giving her testimony And this sweet young lady had returned from Kabul, Afghanistan, where she was serving as a missionary nurse. And while in Afghanistan, she had met a a young man, and they had courted, and they had now fallen in love. And he had asked her to marry him. But when he asked her to marry him, she responded, well, I have made a commitment to my church back home to come here and serve on the mission field. To marry you might change everything, and so I need to fly back to Scotland and ask the leaders of the church for their permission. And so that's what the woman did. She had purchased a ticket. She had flown back from Afghanistan to Scotland to seek the permission of the elders. And the elders had now asked her to share her story with the congregation. Well, Briscoe continues, As I watched the congregation as she spoke, I noticed that there was a young fellow in the front row who was grimacing and making weird body languages or body gestures. And after the young nurse was done speaking, she sat down next to me. And I leaned over to her and I asked, Do you know that guy in the front row? And she said, Well, that's him. What? I asked. Well, that's the young man. But I thought you said he was in Kabul. Oh, he was. But when he heard that I was flying back to Scotland, he said he wanted to speak to the elders too. And so he purchased a ticket and he jumped on the next plane and he came to Scotland asking, where is she? And Briscoe concludes, you see, you can always tell lovers because they come after the beloved. They don't give up. And that's the picture that Jesus gives of his disciples Jesus says, since you have received my love and my forgiveness, since you live in that loving relationship with me, you come after me. You seek after me as a lover comes after the beloved. Are you a Christian? A disciple of Jesus Christ? Well, if anyone comes after me, let him deny himself. We must not confuse denying oneself with self-denial. 
Self-denial is the sort of thing that some people do at Lent when they deny themselves meat and chocolates and alcoholic beverages and, and other temptations. And that's not necessarily what Jesus is talking about here in this text. Denying yourself is recognizing that there's really two ways to live one's life. There's the self way or there's the God way. A disciple of Jesus Christ lives God's way. That means that disciples of Jesus Christ change their beliefs and they change their morals and they change their values and they change their behavior and they change even their politics to be in conformity with the teachings of their master and teacher. Christians, you see, live to serve the living God. Come after me, deny yourself, and take up your cross. When Jesus took up his cross, he wasn't putting up with the inevitable. He wasn't submitting to the unavoidable. His attitude wasn't, well, if I don't do it, no one else will. No, Jesus took up his cross, and he bore in our sins in his body on a tree so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness, for by his wounds you and I have been healed. And so we take up our crosses in Jesus' name, not because we are putting up with the inevitable or submitting to the unavoidable or resigning, us to, resigning ourselves to the reality that if we don't do it, no one else will do it, and that's somehow a cross that we're bearing. No, we take up our crosses because we know that Jesus voluntarily, lovingly, sacrificially took up his cross for us in faithfulness to his Father and that by his death we are healed. Disciples of Jesus Christ come after him, they deny themselves, they take up their cross, and they keep on following him. When I was a teenager, I was an active member of the youth group at my congregation. And one summer, our, our youth group decided that we would do something quite silly. We thought we'd go on a 30-mile bike trip. Now, everyone was full of energy as we met at the church. And as we started out from Redeemer, oh, we just thought we could conquer the world. And we whizzed through the streets of Waterloo, Ontario, and we soon found ourselves out in the countryside. And about eight, five to eight miles into the bike-a-thon, some of my friends began to grow tired, and they were complaining. And they were really talking about maybe we should just call it quits. But we kept going. And when we were 15 to 20 minutes or 20 miles into the trip, some of my fellow youth really wanted to quit. And some of the bikers, well, they were, you know, in good shape, and so they were two to three miles ahead of the rest of us slowpokes waiting for us to catch up. Now, some of the ones that were in the front came back to the stragglers to help them and to urge them to persevere, to continue on. And eventually, everyone who started the bike trip completed it. Oh, some got there sooner than others, but we all completed it. Oh, there was some sweat equity invested in the effort, there were a few skinned knees and there were some sore, aching muscles and we were all exhausted and we slept well that night when we eventually did get to sleep. But there was a lot of joy in the camp that night as we set it up. Joy in the knowledge that the trip had been completed by everyone who had started it. And the point of the illustration is this. Disciples of Jesus Christ are in something like a bike marathon. Disciples of Jesus Christ, that is Christians, are traveling to heaven and they're determined to make it. And along the way, they grow weary. We grow weary. 
And some of us are ready to quit. And some, in fact, do quit. And some of us need encouragement. They don't need us waiting for them two to three miles ahead, waiting for us to catch up and asking what's with those slowpokes. But they need us to come back to them to encourage them, to give them some much-needed nourishment, refreshment. They might need us to come back and give them some ointment on their scrapes and bruises. They might need us to rest along the way of the road, so to speak, with them. But that's what disciples of Jesus Christ do. They keep on going. They keep on going. They keep on going until they finish the race. And in the process, as we keep on going, we encourage others to finish the journey too. So today, we leave the church as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Actually, we came as a disciple of Jesus Christ, didn't we? We came, we go as a disciple of Jesus Christ, and tomorrow, you know what? We go about our life as a disciple of Jesus Christ, as a Christian. And that means that we are loving, we're following Jesus, we're serving in His name, we're leading others to Him, and we're telling them about the love that our Savior has for them and for us. A love so great that He was willing to die for us. A love so great that He rose from the dead, promising us that we will live with Him forever. And so you see, ordinary folk make great disciples. Amen. And now may the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard and keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.